The resurrection changes things. To use a very silly example, but one that displays the truth of this, imagine if your dog or pet got up from the dead on its own because he genuinely held the power of death. Right? Wouldn't that change things? You would interact with your dog just slightly differently if you knew that it had the power over death. You might reorder your life because you know you're going towards death. You might reorder your life according to what your dog thinks because he has the power to raise you from the dead. You might want to start listening to his advice a little bit more, trying to figure out how this dog could work for you. Of course, this is a silly illustration, but it tells a story about how indeed our lives would change and begin to center around the one who held power over death. Christians, of course, believe that it isn't a dog who has power over death. Thank God you can just imagine if dog were God, what the world might look like. But we believe that Jesus Christ, the God-man, has power over death. And in Him alone there is salvation. And He saves us from this thing of death which is held over our heads. Because we can't. And this is why God sent His Son into the world. So the gospel is, if you're visiting with us, that God had created us to be in a perfect relationship with Him. And we were designed to live with Him in fellowship. There was no death. There was no death hanging over our heads. No threatenings. But we rebelled against him. We sinned against him, and so we earned for ourselves just condemnation, even, the Bible says, death and hell, eternal punishment. But God, in his love and mercy, desired to pursue a sinful people, and so he sent Jesus Christ to live a perfect life, his very own son, to die on the cross, to die the death that we deserve, as he bore the wrath and the sins that we had committed upon himself and he bore our punishment on the cross in order that those who would believe in him would be free even freed from the curse of death even freed from eternal punishment and so he saves us and so where he dies for sin we his followers are said to die with him to sin where he is raised to new life, we too are said to be raised and given new life because of his new life. And we begin to follow him too. Ask the friend who brought you here how it is they became a Christian and what it is they feel about obeying the laws of God and the words of God. Sure, no doubt it might be difficult at times. That's just reality, living in a sinful world. But yet there's something in us that says, you know what, we used to get drunk and we used to live in sexual immorality. But now we desire to live for God and to put off those things, though certainly we are tempted towards those things. And we begin living our lives with a reorientation towards him who has power over death. From today's passage... Certainly is a very interesting Easter passage as we're just preaching through the book of Colossians. From today's passage, we see how the gospel and new life in Christ, how it changes our relationships, right? We're being reoriented towards God. And even the very ways in which we conduct our relationships in the home, even those things begin to change. So I invite you to turn with me to your, in your Bibles to Colossians chapter 3, verses 18. And if you're using the Pew Bible in front of you, it is found on page 984. That's 984 in the English Standard Version and the Pew Bible in front of you. This is what it says. This is God's Word. Wives, submit to your husbands as is fitting in the Lord. Husbands, love your wives and do not be harsh with them. Children, obey your parents in everything, for this pleases the Lord. Fathers, do not provoke your children, lest they become discouraged. Bondservants, obey in everything those who are your earthly masters, not by the way of eye service as people pleasers, but with sincerity of heart, fearing the Lord. 
Whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward. You are serving the Lord Christ. For the wrongdoer will be paid back for the wrong he has done, and there is no partiality. Masters, treat your bondservants justly and fairly, knowing that you also have a master in heaven. How's that for an Easter passage? It may seem, once again, like our passage has nothing to do with the resurrection, but that is incorrect. In fact, our passage has everything to do with the fact of the resurrection and the resurrection's implications. Remember, in this book, in the book of Colossians, the letter to the church of Colossus, there Paul is writing, encouraging them to remember the new life they have in Jesus Christ, that they had the fullness of life, given they have died to sin with Jesus and have been raised to new life. With Jesus, And so this is just a natural implication here of how the resurrection reality changes stuff, namely relationships in the home. So our passage addresses what it looks like to live out our domestic relationships to the glory of Jesus. Supremacy of Christ is a huge theme in the book, and our passage today helps us look at what it looks like for Christ to reign supreme in your home. Now a lot of you guys are gathering for Easter... Uh, celebrations, you know, Resurrection Sunday, the Lord's Day. We celebrate that when uh, as the day that Jesus got up from the dead. So we do this every single Lord's Day. But you guys, especially many of us, might be gathering together, and you might be going to family gatherings, and there might be certain awkward situations. There might be tense relationships, possibly. You might be struggling to love somebody, maybe your own very husband, maybe your own very wife, your children etc. But this passage here talks about how the resurrection truth and its implications can change the way that you interact with your family. And more importantly, change your very own heart. So look there, I mean, you see that this is not just morality. So it's a point we've been making before. This here is about how Christ changes your life. So as you notice how often Christ shows up in the passage there. Look in verse 18. Paul says there, wives, do what is fitting in the Lord. It says in the Lord, right? And then verse 20, children obey because it pleases the Lord. Verse 22, bond servants serve your masters, fearing the Lord. And then in 23, work heartily for the Lord because, of course, the Lord is your rewarder. And then verse four, in chapter 4, verse 1, masters know that you are under the authority of the Lord. So this here is all life lived, domestic life lived, where Christ truly is supreme for the Christian. And as we look at how the supremacy of Christ is to show itself in the home, we see specifically how it's supposed to change relationships. The structure in this passage from 318 to 4.1, uh, it goes like this. Paul addresses three different groups or pairs of people. First, he addresses the ones who are not in the place of authority. And then he addresses the ones who are in the place of authority. So, for example, the first pair is wives and husbands. Second, he addresses children and parents. Third, he addresses slaves and then masters. And again, we see what the supremacy of Christ is supposed to produce. So all of us here will find ourselves one day being either or have been already a child. Or maybe being a parent. Or maybe a wife-to-be or a husband-to-be. Maybe even an employer or an employee as we apply that section to us today. So with, these, with this structure in mind, let's go ahead and see how the supremacy of Christ is to produce first humble submission in a Christian wife. How the supremacy of Christ is to produce humble submission in a Christian wife. This is point number one. Look at verse 18. It says, wives, submit to your husbands as is fitting in the Lord. Now off the bat, let me clarify. This is not a servile, menial bondage. This is not a submission that that reveals that somehow a wife, or a woman even, is somehow inferior to the husband. Or that she has less dignity or less value. That is not Christian submission according to the Bible. Biblical submission for the wife, to use one scholar's biblical definition, he says it is the divine calling... To honor and affirm her husband's leadership and help carry it through according to her gifts. 
So I'll repeat that again. Biblical submission for the wife is the divine calling to honor and affirm her husband's leadership and help carry it through according to her gifts. Now we see this throughout all of Scripture. Again, this is a biblical definition. So when God creates the first couple ever, man and wife, Adam and Eve, he creates Adam first and he is he has the weight of responsibility of being the leader. So the weight of responsibility is upon him, and you see this in any number of ways. So for example, when Eve sins, right, God doesn't move towards Eve first and hold her accountable. He actually, God moves towards the man, and he holds him accountable first. He, Adam there fails, and many, many of you wives might be quick to point out that your husbands do fail at times. Uh, there, Adam is failing tremendously. He's not protecting his wife from the dangers that God has already laid out from them. It seems like he's just sort of passively sitting there in Genesis chapter 3, just watching her sin and go against God, and he is failing in his relationship. But nevertheless, the scripture just moves on. It just reveals that the man, bear, the husband bears a certain responsibility that a woman doesn't. It doesn't mean that he is, more, he is, in, or sorry, he is superior and she is inferior. It just means that he has a very distinct role. But the two are equal. The fact that Adam fails and many husbands do fail and even use their position of, a, of leadership and authority wrongly. I mean, that's, a, that's one reason why there's so much pushback against this idea of biblical submission in relation to a wife towards her husband. Keep in mind there, I'm not saying all women towards all men. That's not what the Bible says. The Bible says particularly wife to husband. But just because authority has been abused in the past does not mean that all authority in itself is wrong, right? Not all authority in and of itself is wrong, nor are all people in authority to be suspect. The Bible says that authority rightly exercised for the good of those under authority and society, for example, can be a wonderful thing. Jesus himself acknowledged this. He submitted himself to the Father. Not my will, but yours be done, he prayed. He wasn't suspicious of the Father's will, but he submitted himself to it. And of course, we're not going to say that Jesus is somehow inferior to the Father. Think of us towards, let's say, President Obama. We are not going to say, not in any way at all, that we are inferior by nature or dignity or value to the President. But we recognize he has a lot more authority than we do. We might not agree with how he exercises it or the ways in which he thinks. I don't know if you do or don't. It's not my point. But nevertheless, we are called to submit to the authority. That's what the, the Bible says. This submission here that we see between the Son and the Father as they are equal in value is hard for us to understand because that submission was a perfect submission. It was an all-loving submission to an all-perfect loving leader who's always acting for the good of his very own son that is jesus christ so as the christian understands it submission to leadership in the lord can be a great and wonderful thing when exercised when the authority is exercised for the good of society and for those who are underneath authority so when christ is supreme in the life of a wife it ought to produce a a humble submission to her husband but let's be clear, if you are a wife, the reason God calls you to submit is not because of the supremacy of your husband. Verse 18 does not say submit to your husbands because it is fitting to your own husband. Look there, it doesn't say that. It says, but because it is fitting in the Lord. So your submission, again, I don't know if you're going to be rejoicing at this, but in some sense we all should be. Your submission is not to be one that bows down to the preeminence of your husband. How short-lived that would be. But to the preeminence of Jesus Christ. And here Christ frees you from fighting against any notion of your husband's preeminence. Or maybe your husband's faulty thinking of his preeminence. And it frees you to live for Jesus Christ. So where we were once trapped to sin, Genesis 3 says... One response to that was that the wife would always be trying to rule over her husband. 
And when a wife becomes a Christian, when a woman becomes a Christian, she's then freed not to live to any notion or faulty notion of man's preeminence, but to live for Jesus. So he frees you to live in a way that you were called to live. He frees you to trust in him and to submit to him as he calls you to submit to your husband. What a pleasure this must be for God the Father to see you, to see his daughters, not trusting finally in any earthly authority for ultimate hope or for comfort or for security, for identity, but trusting in him and his good design for marriage. This is why it is fitting in the Lord because God himself designed it this way. It's interesting in the New Testament, if, if you look at uh, the calls for wives to submit to their husbands, it's rooted in not just popular opinion at the time or the cultural expectations, but because God really did design it this way. He made Adam first and put the responsibility on his shoulders to lead and care and love and to make your marriage a place where you delight in submission. And what's amazing, too, is that Paul here, he doesn't command wives to submit like an imperative. He doesn't say, submit, imperative. He actually puts it, the way he writes it, in a middle voice, meaning that you should allow yourself to be in submission to your husband. And that's fascinating, isn't it? He himself is not commanding that a wife should submit, but he says, wives, allow yourself to be in submission to your husbands. I mean, even that makes a really big difference. This is fitting in the Lord. Not only does the supremacy of Christ produce humble submission in a wife, that's point number one, it is to produce sacrificial love in a Christian husband. So remember, husbands, these are reciprocal responsibilities. Okay, They are reciprocal responsibilities. There is a temptation, I think, for husbands to feel as if you and Paul are writing the letter to your very own wife. But that's not what's going on here. Paul addresses wives, then he moves on and addresses husbands. Look at verse 19. Husbands, love your wives and do not be harsh with them. One fallout of the fall and sin is that wives uh, would not love, or sorry, that husbands would not love their wives in a godly way. And so what it looked like again is Adam was sitting by the wayside. He wasn't protecting her shielding her from the serpent but he seems again to be passive so here when paul comes along and he says husbands love your wives he knows that that is a deficiency in husbands again we aren't supposed to read this with a certain familiarity as if me and paul are writing this to my wife or you and paul are writing this to your wife it's amazing you know in the new testament um this command would have been absolutely revolutionary. The reason why is because this wasn't a stated task towards husbands. This was not. So one biblical scholar, he wrote it, he, he noted that after examining extra-biblical letter, literature, he could confidently say that there is no place anywhere where man is called to love his wife. That's an incredible statement. He's basically saying, look, here's the Bible's literature, all the other literature out there in the Greco-Roman society. Nowhere did it call for husbands to love their wives. But here comes all of the letters of Paul, and you see, what's the command for the husbands to do? It is to love their wives. Ephesians 5.25 says, Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. So they're just as the Christian doesn't understand the gospel apart from Christ's love for the church, so the husband cannot understand husbanding, husbanding if we don't understand love, namely the love of Christ towards the church. It's inherent in the thing. And how amazing is it that all husbands are to love their wives as Jesus loved the church, and in God's mind it was his own love that set in motion this plan to save the church. Right before, the, before anything existed, God set his mind and his heart on saving the church. And he, then he creates marriage and says, okay, husbands and, and wives, what I'm going to have you guys do is display a little bit for the watching society of what my love really looks like. 
So the love that husbands are supposed to show to their wives here, it reflects this eternal love that God has for his church. Now, husbands, you may be surprised that the command here does not give advice on how to ensure your wife will fulfill her responsibility to submit. That's really interesting too, isn't it? It's important to note that the Bible never calls a husband to subject your wife. It never says that. It just speaks directly to wives. Wives submit to your husbands. And husbands, love your wives. It does not say husbands make sure your wives submit or somehow coerce them into making sure that they submit as in you are to subject them to your leadership and authority. It does not say that. And we would be in sin if we were to make them do this, coerce them to do this. You know, brother, you husband or husband-to-be, we are to receive this. And we too are supposed to allow the supremacy of Christ to reign in our relationship and responsibility with our wives. And our responsibility, once again, is not to dominate, it is to love and to not be harsh, because that's our temptation, right? The woman from Genesis 3 wants to respond and rule over, but there, because of sin, it says that the man will then show his rulership over in a very bad way. He will dominate. That's the temptation here, but God says, no, don't be harsh. Christ has freed us from those things. We used to live in those ways, but praise God, because we have put on our new selves, we can live in a very different way. This is the resurrection life here. I mentioned that this is one of our greatest deficiencies because of sin. But at the same time, it's one of our greatest opportunities, isn't it? It's defi- we, this is one of our greatest deficiencies because it is a mark of sin that we be harsh, unfortunately, and not love our wives. But it is a gr- like one of our greatest opportunities to love like Jesus loves. To you husbands, to wield your very self, everything that God has given you emotionally, your energy capacities, your financial capacities, your spiritual capacities, to loving, protecting, and caring our wives, caring for our wives, your future wife. Show me a man who does that, because that guy is a stud, right? That's a Christ-like love that resembles Jesus' love who wielded his whole entire being in order to gather the church, embrace the church, save the church, and all of that through the shedding of his own blood. This is what you were called to do, husbands. Husbands, love your wife in such a way where she finds her submission to you to be a great delight. How this must please the Father. To see his sons loving the same way he loves, sacrificing, protecting, giving, securing, and giving his whole self to the bride. The supremacy of Christ here is supposed to show itself. It's supposed to produce submission in a wife, sacrificial love in a husband, and third, it is to produce obedience in a child. Obedience in a child. This is point number three. Children in the service, please raise your hands. Okay, Paul, the apostle, who's writing the very words of God, is speaking to you guys here. He's talking to children who are being brought up in underneath their parents' home. Now, I know some of you guys might still be in college, and to some degree you're still dependent upon your parents, and they expect you uh, to rely and depend on them and submit to them in certain areas and not in others. It's a little unclear if he's talking, to about, talking about you all, but he's definitely talking about you children who are being brought up in your parents' home and dependent upon them for life. He says there in 3.20, children, look at that verse, chapter 3, verse 20. It says, Children, obey your parents in everything, for this pleases the Lord. How's your obedience to your parents going these days? Or your guardians, if you live with your guardians. Or your grandparents, if you, if you live with your grandparents. Are you obeying them in everything? Is this obedience even something you desire? You know, from the heart. Not just simply in your head, like you do what mom says you should do. 
Or is this something you want to do? You know, there's a difference between the two. So, for example, if your parent tells you to stop dating this boy because they're suspicious, or if your parents tell you to brush your teeth, you know, are you saying, oh, I gotta brush my teeth again? I gotta take a shower again? Or do you do it trusting your parents? Obeying them in everything because it pleases the Lord. Now, I assume you guys laugh, you children laugh, because you're guilty. And that's a good thing. Because it means your conscience, right? The conscience that God has given you kind of hints to you, telling you what is right and what's wrong. Now, don't always trust your conscience because sometimes our consciences can be pretty messed up. Your conscience might tell you it's good to disobey. But generally speaking, your conscience is given to you to tell you what is right or wrong and given to you by God. And even now, your laughter, right? When you just laughed about having to brush your teeth again, it's telling you something. It's telling that you don't want to obey your parents in everything. And that's because of sin. But did you notice there why children are to obey your parents? Look again at 3.20. Why are children to obey their parents? It says for or because is the reason this pleases the Lord. Have you ever thought that pleasing your parents is you pleasing the Lord God of the universe who created you? You know, as a parent, let me just say, it is great to have children obeying their parents. But please do not mistake your parents for your final authority. Okay, children, are you still, are you still tracking here? Do not confuse your parents with final authority. No doubt your parents, your, your guardians, your step-parents, your grandparents are your authorities, but they are not your final authorities. We are not supreme. That's not what Colossians is about, right? It's not parents, you are supreme. It is Jesus is supreme. He's the one who got it from the dead. I mean, some of us, some of your very own parents, your guardians, your step-parents, your grandparents can barely get out of the bed tonight. But Jesus gets up from the dead. And you guys realize that he calls you to obey him. So seeking to obey your parents might help you here on this earth if that's all you're doing with no intention to please God, right? Pleasing your parents here on earth will help you temporarily, but pleasing Jesus will help you eternally. And he calls you to live your life for him ultimately and not your parents. But without doubt, he also says, obey your parents. You can indeed live for the sake of his name. You don't have to be a parent to do this. You don't have to be a wife to do this. You don't have to be a husband to do this. You don't even have to be a grown-up to please God. And one major way that Christ calls you to live for Him is to actually care about what pleases Him. Believing Him, trusting Him, and obeying Him. This is a simple definition of what it means to live for the sake of Jesus' name. And you know, your Creator and your Maker calls you to obey and be respectful to your parents. Jesus says this amazingly. He says this as one who was good with kids. I mean, we have every reason to think that Jesus was great with children. In Luke 18, there his followers were trying to keep the children from coming to him. But Jesus says specifically to them, he says, he says there that he calls the little children to him, saying, no, let the little children come to me. And do not hinder them, for to such belongs the kingdom of God. Now, he doesn't mean that the kingdom of God belongs only to little people, but to a faith that little children often have, that believe and trust and obey God, and see that Christ is indeed supreme. So children, again, if you know you aren't obeying your children, know this good news, that Jesus forgives you. This is why Jesus came to earth to die on the cross for sins in order to pay for them so that you wouldn't have to. So for example, we turn through all of scripture. Now many of you, many of you children already know a lot of these stories. He saves very sinful people. I mean, how awesome is that, right? It should fling open the gate on who qualifies for salvation. If you are a sinner... And you believe in Jesus, you have salvation. So he saves Noah, who was a drunkard. 
You guys remember King David? He was an adulterer. He loved many women instead of just loving his wife. And he was a murderer. And yet God saved him. You think of the Apostle Paul who's writing this very letter. Who previously went by the name Saul. He too was a murderer of Christians. And yet God forgave him. So no matter how disobedient you have been. No matter how much you do not care about obeying your parents. God can still forgive you. If you turn to him and confess your sin and acknowledge him to be supreme, Christ the Lord, Christ the Savior, why would you wait, child? If you know that you've been, if you have sinned against your parents and ultimately sinned before God, why would you wait to run to him, to fly to him and his salvation that he offers in the cross? Let me encourage you to talk to your parents about this. And if you know that you have been disobedient, confess your sins to them. And they will forgive you and point you to Jesus Christ. Moving on, not only does the supremacy of Christ produce humble submission in a wife, sacrificial love in a husband, complete obedience in a Christian child, but it also is to produce gentle cultivation in a parent. Remember here, these are reciprocal responsibilities. Look there in verse 21. If you are a parent or parent-to-be or want to be a parent, this applies here. You should be planning for your future. He says there in 21, Fathers, do not provoke your children lest they become discouraged. Okay, so children, if you are feeling provoked or you're thinking, man, I got like a billion things to do because my parents want them to be. Here in verse 21, God says, no, fathers, do not provoke your children lest they become discouraged. Children, you certainly are to obey. But God wants the parents here to pay attention. Say, be gentle. Call them to obedience, but be gentle. And he says fathers there. It's not, it's not because um, he wants to exclude the wife here. There's evidence that this word uh, could also mean parent. But the weight here, again, falls on the father. and But we can expand it to uh, mother as well. But here the supremacy of Christ is to show itself as parents become gentle cultivators instead of being provokers. So what, what this means here, being a provoker here, it basically means a parent irritating their child by nagging them constantly or by deriding them or putting them down. Ephesians chapter 6 verse 4 says, Similarly, fathers do not exasperate your children. So don't go about irritating them. Through constant fault-finding. Don't go about irritating them through constant fault-finding. I mean, this kind of parenting is more like being an ice-skating judge, right? Uh, Where the judge is really pointing out faults for the performance that is childhood. You you know, where, where you're just docking off points because, you know, they kicked up a little bit of ice too much than you would have liked to have seen. But seeing this child's rather, you know, their life, I mean, it implies that they got the routine down, doesn't it? Expectations are really high and they're being driven like horses to perform, docked for their failures. Of course, this leads to discouragement where the child eventually loses heart. Instead, it's more appropriate to see a child as one who needs cultivation. They need to be planted firmly in the seedbed of their parents' guidance, of their love, of their care, and of their raising. I'm not saying that parents are not to point out faults and how they've sinned. We certainly are. But we are to do it as a fellow sinner helping another fellow sinner. And with a goal towards restoration with God, right? This is not merely parenting over the child. But it's parenting alongside with the child, really identifying with them as sinners. One thing that I found to be incredibly effective in child cultivation is sharing some of your very own failures and sins. Of course, in wisdom. Of course, in a way that corresponds with their maturity. Right. So if a parent is only or merely telling them how they've gone wrong and how they've sinned and what they need to do better, right, there's no identification there. It's just child over. And if you do that, it actually can cause this confusion to the child and make the child think that God is God, but mom and dad are too. Because if the child is perfect, then they're basically putting themselves on the same plane as God. But when a parent is certainly pointing out sin or pointing out wrongs 
and coming alongside the child? There, you both together say, we are both sinners. And we can go to Christ for these things. You're identifying with them in their sins, letting them into your own failures, and it makes going to Christ so much easier. So let me ask you, when was the last time you shared your sins with your children? Of course, in wisdom. Of course, in a way that corresponds with their maturity. I mean, you, you actually might have, you might face some interesting conversations. Um, my children know, and I've spoken about this before, I got kicked out of UCI, University of California, Irvine. I had a spectacular GPA of a 1.26 after one year. Uh, I lost all hope because I thought world of this life was meaningless, so I just didn't study. And I'm happy to talk about this to my children because I want them to know that I mess up too. Of course, it's not my goal that they would get kicked out of school. But, you know, in talking to them about this, you know, it makes for interesting conversations because children are children. So I remember one time having a couple in this church over. And we were just chatting about life and everything like that. And we were talking about schools that they had gone to and schools that we had gone to. And, of course, I refer to the school that I went to last as in Biola, the school I graduated from. You know, if I listed all the different schools, I'd talk about UCI, Irvine Valley College, Santa Monica College, Fullerton College. And for a day, I went to Mount Sac. Right? So it's just easier just to say, I went to UCI. I'm oh, sorry, I went to Biola. And in the conversation, you know, when we're getting to know visitors at a church, one of my children whom I love dearly, says, you went to UCI too and you got kicked out. <laughs> and I said, I certainly did. Let me explain that. <laughs> um, but that's okay. Because they know that I make mistakes. And I'm making the determination that they can handle that in their own maturity. And, and you all, I encourage you to just make those judgment calls uh, that is suiting for your own temper and your family dynamics. Expose yourself. You know, we, we know that there are sinners in here. But God does not intend that they would never see sinners in here. Right? I mean, if, if truly the people in the Old Testament are given to us as examples and their faults in their failures, all the Israelites wandering in the desert, as it says in Corinthians, they were given to us as examples. And so we too are examples for our children to know how they ought not to live life and to know how they ought to live life. How encouraging it is for a child to see that they not only have a parent who's over them, but a parent who's alongside of them. One who says, I've lied to, I've stolen to, I've been mean to, been angry to, I've idolized things as well. I've, been, I've struggled not to forgive, and I understand you. So let's go to Jesus together, because I know that forgiveness. How this must have pleased God, right? To see parents shepherding in a similar way that he does. With all gentleness. Taking the long view of things. You know, he could dump everything that you need to work on right now. It would be like a million point checklist. But he doesn't do that. He gently, and in his own timing, reveals certain sins in you. In order that we might put it off and pursue the things of God. You just imagine the gentleness of God. Knowing everything that we all need to work on, but yet holding back, holding back and then gently revealing things in his very own timing. And with restoration in view. And so we are to love like that. So we've looked at the first pair, wives and husbands. The supremacy of Christ produces humble submission in a wife. It produces sacrificial love in a husband. The second pair there was children and parents. It is the supremacy of Christ that's to produce obedience in a child and the gentle cultivation in a Christian parent. Then he moves to the third pair. He moves to address bond servants and their masters. And we know here that the supremacy of Christ is to produce a diligence unto the Lord in a Christian bond servant. Diligence unto the Lord in a Christian bond servant. Look there in verse 22. Bond servants obey in everything those who are your earthly masters, not by the way, not by way of eye service as people pleasers, but with sincerity of heart, fearing the Lord. Whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward. You are serving the Lord Christ. For the wrongdoer will be paid back for the wrong he has done, and there is no partiality. Now the institution of slavery in the New Testament was a bit different than 
chattel slavery in the U.S., that the, the slavery that the U.S. sinfully partook in. In the New Testament times, you could sell yourself into slavery, into indentured servitude. And the bondservant or slave, if it were possible, after he had earned enough money from his master, he could buy himself out even, out of slavery, into freedom if the situation allowed. Now, without doubt, there were abuses in New Testament slavery. Take First Peter, for example, it talks about how there were unjust masters who were apparently were, were kind of beating or punishing their Christian bondservants in a certain way. Masters had full rights over the slave. I mean, there, there was horrendous things done. Uh, but there were, there's also evidence that shows that some slaves were well cared for, and the master gave them freedom to pick up professions, become doctors, artisans, and things like this. I mean, if you think about ancient Rome during this time, 50% of the population were slaves. So when we read this passage, we do not want to assume that slavery that this land has known was the exact same slavery uh, there in the first century, where people were stealing others and then selling them to others. That kind of slavery, the Bible very clearly says, is sin. But this slavery, certainly there were sinful abuses, uh, but there were also different kind of aspects here. Uh, for, nevertheless, for the bondservant who was in Christ, fulfilling their earthly responsibility with an eye to pleasing the Lord was just as important for the bondservant as it was for everybody else, for the wife, for the husband, for the child, for the parent. And even though you might not be an indentured servant, remember as we try to apply this to today, most of us have held jobs, and you know how easy it can be to work, as Paul says, by way of eye service. Right? When your employer, uh, just when the owner of the restaurant, let's say, for example, if you work at a restaurant or whatever, finances, the owner, your manager comes by, then all of a sudden you sit up straight and make sure that you are you know, not looking at YouTube videos or Facebook or whatever it is that you look at. That, that's working by way of eye service. And then when the person goes, then you're kind of, you go back to your slumped position towards work and your service towards the company. That's pleasing people, Paul says. In a way that simply aims to get people off your back. Now the wife can do this too to a demanding husband. The husband can do this too to, let's say, a demanding wife. This is working by way of eye service, simply doing the bare minimum in order for them to leave you alone. Kind of like a pest. And uh, this is compliance, right? Outward compliance with no real care for your own heart. And no real care for your own work. No real desire to see your boss's success or your company's success. This is bare minimum. But bare minimum is not the aim of the bondservant of the Lord. It is not the aim of the bondservant of the Lord. Instead, God calls his people to focus on pleasing and fearing the Lord, which necessarily involves... Serving from the heart. Right? Serving as if you were eye pleasers or people pleasers. You please just to get the pest off your back and then you go back to normal. But God says, no, you serve from the heart. Sincerely from the heart. So here the aim here is sincerity. The aim is integrity. It's not a work that sees your employer or your husband or your wife or your parent as a pest to be shooed away by lazy work. But a sincere heart that genuinely desires the good of others. Your company's good. Your boss's good. God desires that his people be diligent with their hands, useful to others, hardworking, industrious, caring, loving. God desires that you benefit society. And if we are going to raise from our laziness, arise from our laziness and selfishness in our domestic efforts there, our relationships, or in our employment responsibilities, then we need to be working in the fear of God. So as we apply this today, we as Christians are all laborers on behalf of the Lord. I mean, have you guys ever considered that? You were merely contracted out by God, sent out to do a specific task. It's almost as if the people you work for now contract with God in some ways for an employee. And as we as people, we are all ultimately employees of the Lord on the workforce of the Lord sent into your specific domain, whether it's working in the hospital, working in the school districts, working in the church, working at UPS, working at In-N-Out, 
working at wherever it is that you work at. And you're contracted out by God's will in order that you might work unto Him. That you might fear Him. That you might represent Him. That you might labor and love others for His glory. And doing all of that in the name of the Lord. Whatever you do, Paul says, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men. Imagine how difficult this must have been if you had a a difficult master or an unfair, unjust master. But Paul is so pastoral here. So if any of you guys here work for some sort of unjust employer, or let's say you are a wife serving a very difficult husband, this applies to us here. He's pastoral. He says, look, whatever you do, work heartily for the Lord and not for men. And then Paul states the motivational factor. The reason for hearty work, it says, knowing, knowing, being certain of, that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your your reward. You are serving the Lord Christ. How much this would have meant, right, to the destitute bondservant who sells himself into servitude or is born into servitude. Right, they got nothing. And as we seek to apply this section to wives who find themselves in a difficult position, or husbands in a difficult position, or children, or parents in a difficult position here, their hope for doing what is right and living the resurrection life in relationship is all based in Jesus. And in this particular section, you're supposed to work knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward. So not only do they have a pay or wage, They have an inheritance. When we work and labor as part of the Lord's workforce, our labor is to be filled with integrity. Our hearts are to be sincere because we strive to please the Lord. I mean, forget pleasing man as if all I get is an earthly wage. Forget working by way of eye service just so I can maintain my own laziness. We serve the Lord of the universe. And I love how Paul brings it back to you are serving the Lord Christ. So imagine if I'm the unjust master and you all are the bond servants. It says you all work in such a way where you know that from Jesus you will receive the inheritance as the, as the reward. And after all, you are serving the Lord. The one who is supreme over all things, who reigns over all things, who created all things and for whom everything is created. And without doubt, he's going to take care of his people. You serve the Lord in whatever service the Lord has you in right now. You are serving the Lord Christ. It's not just any master, but the Lord of lords, the master of masters, the one over all creation, the one to whom all things belong. It also is, the supremacy of Christ is also to promote fair and just treatment from the Christian master. This is the last point. The supremacy of Christ is also to produce fair and just treatment from a Christian master. Look there at one. Masters, treat your bondservants justly and fairly, knowing that you also have a master in heaven. Clearly, justice and fairness is called for in this resurrection life, in this resurrection employment situation. Most likely, these terms function as synonyms, and they actually... Uh, deal with wage. They actually deal with pain. He says, look, you should be fair and you should do what you are obligated to do to people. Don't be impartial. And if the bondservants are to serve in the fear of the Lord, knowing that God rewards, masters are to be equitable also because of Jesus Christ. Knowing, it says there, that you also have a master in heaven. It's interesting, right, for the bondservant, for the one who has a greater chance of suffering, Paul seems to comfort. But for the master in a position of greater responsibility, Paul places all of that weight directly on him and says, you know for certain that you have a master in heaven. And he too will repay evil for evil, good for good. He himself will weigh out the balances as one who is fair and just. In Ephesians 6 verse 9, Paul says similarly, masters... Do the same to them, or be a master with goodwill. And stop your threatening, knowing that he who is both their master and yours is in heaven, and that there is no partiality with him. He says, look, you share a master 
And your master isn't partial to those just because they're in authority. Absolutely not. If anything, there's more. There's greater responsibility. And so he will judge you according to that responsibility, though you are saved in Jesus Christ. So let me speak to those of you who will find yourself in a position of authority over others one day. There are people here who are already in authority over others in terms of uh, employment. God says here, be fair and be just. And doing that actually reveals part of God's character to your employees. And I've seen this work tremendously where employers will fight for the rights of their employees. And their employees then love and trust their employers. They go to them in need of help. They trust that their employers have their best interest in mind. And so he calls you to justice. And fairness, and he does that in order to display a little bit more of his character, his own justice and his own fairness. So this is how the resurrection life changes things, it changes relationships. You all will find yourself at various family gatherings, and again, there might be some difficulty knowing that you've disobeyed your parents, even if that was 30 years ago. Or maybe you were a little bit too hard on your children, which was again maybe 40 years ago. But here God says... That because of the resurrection, we can live new lives in Jesus Christ. More importantly than that, he can change your heart because he saves you from sin. And this passage here, even this one, points to us the fact that God is forgiving if you would repent of your sin and believe on him. And he fixes relationships. And again, most importantly, he fixes your heart and your relationship with him. If you would repent of your sins... And trust in Jesus Christ. This is all what it looks like to leave behind the old self. And to put on the new self. That has not only died with Christ. But has also been raised with Jesus Christ. There is power there. So he calls us. To do all things in word or deed. Do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus. Giving thanks to God the Father through him. Who would not want restored relationships. Particularly. A restored relationship with God, your creator and maker. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, Lord, we do thank you that there is new life in Christ. And that the resurrection is based in truth. And our our changed lives are ultimately based in this event that happened about 2,000 years ago. We thank you, Lord Jesus, that you give us hope in the resurrection. And that you say that our bodies will be raised finally. And that we can have new life, this new life in Jesus Christ. We thank you, Lord, that in Christ there is the fullness of life. And Lord, we pray even now that our relationships in the home our domestic responsibilities and relationships, that these will be marked by the reign and the peace of Jesus Christ. Father, we pray that if we are in a position of authority, that we would use that authority well, knowing that you indeed will judge us for it. And if we find ourselves in a place of submission, which all of us are, as we submit to the authorities that rule over the land, as we submit to various employers, submit to husbands, submit to parents, Lord, we pray that we would be trusting ultimately in God. Give us hearts that trust, not ultimately anything here on earth, but a heart that trusts in you. As you've already shown that you are the one in authority. As you bring about universal pacification and the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And new life for those who believe in you. In your name we pray. Amen.